one of the most compelling arbitration cases in NHL history will remain a mystery. And that's because after celebrating his birthday and his day with the Stanley Cup, Jordan Bennington got a two-year extension from the St. Louis Blues. That contract also makes him eligible for NHL free agency in 2021, a year that has no shortage of noteworthy NHL netminders. We'll discuss that in our main topic. Plus, we have a few other bridge deals that could lead to long-term rewards. Jacob Truba signs his long-term deal with the Rangers. The Hawks make some trades. Another UFA is leaving Columbus and Seattle as a general manager. Episode 180 of the Lace Up Podcast starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. Hey, welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Dubuff. Before we go any further, we're going to delve into Hockey Hall of Fame book of trivia. Brett, are you ready for this week's question? I am, yes. Perfect. Question number 65. Here we go. When did the Hockey Hall of Fame first elect American-born member? Was it A, in 1945 at its inaugural induction, B, in 1955, 10 years after its first induction, C, 1965, 20 years after its first induction, or D, 1975, 30 years after its first induction? Um, that's tough. I'm going to say 20 years after its induction. I don't really know. <laughs> So that would be 1965, C is your guess. Yes. It is 1945 at its inaugural induction. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. Um, In its first year, the Hall of Fame inducted eight Canadians, with one of them uh, born in Scotland. That's interesting. And Pennsylvania native, oh, you probably heard of this one, Hobie Baker. Right, of course, yeah. The famous, uh, the best college hockey award guy. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> so, all right, cool. Um, okay, so, yeah, we have, I mean, we don't have a ton to talk about, actually, this week, but it'll probably, it's still a jam-packed show, um, mm-hmm. just considering that it's, you know, we, we're, we, we have a weird schedule where we talk every two weeks. Um, so we're going to start with, uh, the first bit of news that happened um, in the past couple of weeks, um, I almost forgot about it, to be honest, but it, it, uh, it did happen. Uh, uh, Bennington, um, I'm blanking on his first name for some reason. Jordan. <laughs> Jordan Bennington. Um, you will know my name after my historic yeah. playoff performance, and Brad's like, oh, what's his name again? Yeah, it's like um, you can tell how out of it in, in the yeah. hockey world I yeah, am right now. Summer vacay I'm like, yeah, I'm like uh, Bobby Margarita. It's like Brett Margarita. <laughs> what year is it? Yeah. Jordan Biddington. Um, yeah, he gets a two-year bridge deal, uh, $4.4 million annual average value. Um, this is one of the – yeah, this I think we talked about this briefly before um, – when we were talking about like just the RFAs that were available, but 
Uh, he, he was an interesting case because if it were to go into arbitration, you know, you could make a case that he would make a ton, like a lot more money than what he's making right now. Um, cause like, you know, when you win the, uh, Stanley cup, almost single-handedly, um, you kind of have that, like he has the best leverage out of every RFA mm-hmm. out there. Uh, cause like it's. He, he he has the right to say like you guys wouldn't be you wouldn't have the cup without me kind of thing so um so yeah he gets a 4.4 million um but on the same end it's like he's only played about uh 30 games or so um so it's it's very possible that uh this could be a fluke season um so he is 26 years old um, he's played 32 uh, games. Uh, he won 24 of them. Um, he was impressive, of course, uh, in that case. Uh, like As soon as he was the starter, the Blues started, just went on a roll. And that was a big reason why they were like the worst team in January. And then when they put, like, they put in Jordan Bennington in as like a last ditch effort, then all of a sudden they started winning games and everything started clicking. Um, 927 save percentage, 1.89 GAA, um, with, uh, in 32 games. Um, but to me, I think I've said this before, um, and then I'll take it to you, um, is like this, this, a Bennington could either be, um, I feel like there's only two comparable goalies um, in the history. Maybe there's another one, but um, for now, there's only two uh, comparables in recent history um, that you could compare to Jordan Bennington's playoff run. Uh, yeah. The first one is Cam Ward when he won in Carolina a couple, um, I think in like 2003. Um, uh, or maybe it was two thousand five. I think. Um, it was. Uh, he he won the cup with the Hurricanes in two thousand six. Oh, two thousand six. So that was the old five. Okay. That was the old five oh six. Right. That was the year, was after the the year, the year right after the lockout. Right. Yeah. Um, and he was a rookie at that point, and then um, mm-hmm. he he kind of got really hot um in the playoffs, and then um and then when he, you know, uh then uh. Then he gets this big contract, and then he was never the same since, um, for whatever reason. Um, and then the other comparable is uh, Matt Murray. Um, he he takes over from Marc Andre Fleury in uh, 2015 during the playoffs, no less. Um, and he starts; he is actually like good right away, even in the playoffs. Um, I mean, you can make a case that the Penguins are, like, a good team without him, but, um, like, you could put anyone in that. But he was, you know, he was really good. And then you go to the next year where he was actually, like, decent in a tandem role with Flurry um, as well. Um, and then um, and then he, like, he starts all the games in the playoffs um, and wins the cup there. Um he doesn't get as much, he doesn't get a ton of, uh, I don't think he got a big payday after that, actually, but, um, actually, let me look here. He, oh, he got, he got a three-year deal, and I believe the AAV was not even four million, it was, yeah, it was 3.75, like, 
I'm yeah. looking right so, now. So yeah, yeah, it was it was a bridge deal plus another year, pretty much. Right, right. So those are like the two comparables, and I feel like um, so it's it's gonna. I mean, obviously, time will tell. I mean, that's the same. That's the same. That's uh, that's really. Um, you could say that about everything here, but um, I feel like Bennington's more along the lines of Matt Murray than um, than what Cam Ward. However, I don't think like I would imagine his his stats will regress a bit next year, but I don't think it's going to be like he's he's going to be a backup or something like that. Like his his starting job is. The starting role for is his at the moment. Yeah, so like you said, Jordan Bennington is is a very interesting case, and like he he was a guy with a lot of promise when he was drafted by the Blues way back when, but um, he's just kind of like been paying his dues in the minors, and he was he kind of rejected that assignment to the ECHL uh, in 2017-18. They couldn't really find a place to put him, so they put him in Providence. Um, and <laughs> that that's that his dream could have ended right there. But, uh, you know, the Blues were in a situation much like the Ottawa Senators in 2014, 2015, when they were on the outside looking in closer and closer to the trade deadline. They're just like, well, what do you got to lose? Let's let's call this kid up. You know, there's, you know, whether it's injury, goaltending concerns. In the case of Ottawa, it's an injury to Robin Leonard. But in, in the case of St. Louis, like nothing was working goaltending wise they got chad johnson in free agency to kind of serve as a bit of an insulation to jake allen he was the exact opposite of insulation all the pucks were going by him and jake allen wasn't doing much better so when jordan bennington texted uh, gm uh, darg armstrong and basically told him hey i'm ready to go um you know at that point you know january 7th one of the worst teams in the league, what do you got to lose? And they bring up Jordan Bennington. He slowly turns the tie, gets the Blues in the playoffs, almost gets them a division title, and does one better, gets them the Stanley Cup on top of that. He did all of that after spending half the season in the minors, and that's why this deal wasn't longer than two years, because it was half a season of unparalleled success. And I totally get why the Blues did this, because of the examples you mentioned, and we'll We'll dig into Cam Ward and uh, Matt Murray in a second, but let's take a look at the Hamburglar, Andrew Hammond specifically. Oh, yeah, that's a in good one, too. 2015 with the Senators. He goes 21-2, and two, 20 wins, one loss, two, regulate, uh, two overtime shootout losses, over 23 starts, 1.79 goals against, 941 save percentage. Gets Ottawa into the playoffs on the final day of the regular season. Starts games one and two against Montreal in round one. Seven goals against on 81 shots. Craig Anderson takes over from there. And over the last four seasons, didn't play at all this year, by the way. Hammond has started 26 games, only five games since the start of 2016-17. Combined record of 7-14-4. So, again, that's an example of catching lightning in a bottle, having one heck of a second half, but after that, kind of an afterthought uh, in the hockey world so um it, it's it's not that you know andrew Hammond's a bad goalie it's just that he got out at the right time and everything was just happening for ottawa that year it seemed like they were a team of destiny for a yeah. while and 
And that's the thing with the Blues. Are they a team of destiny or just a really good team? So we go to Cam Ward, who had a monster run, as you mentioned, with Carolina in 2006. He went 15-8 and eight that playoffs, 2.14 goals against, 920 save percentage. During that same regular season, 14-8-2 record over 25 starts, GAA of 3.68 and an 8.82 save percentage. So even in the regular season, when he wasn't the guy, Martin Gerber was the number one goalie in the regular season. He had the record, but dear God, his goals against was over 3.5. That is not overly impressive. Right. So we go to... 2006 2007 when he wins 30 games gaa still over 2.9 save percentage still under 900 and granted he would go on to win at least 30 games in five of the six seasons following his rookie year but the canes only made the playoffs once during that stretch and in 2016 17 he posted 26 wins the most in an nhl season for him since 2011 2012 so over the past five six seven years not nearly as good as the goaltender that he was and even when he was winning 30 plus games for the hurricanes in his prime the lowest his gaa was in a single season was 2.44 so in 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 today's nhl you know that that 2.44 is good but it's not lights out dominant good and and I, I shouldn't say that Cam Ward is a bad goalie because he has over 300 wins to his name, but not as dominant, like you said, uh, when he was uh, with the Hurricanes when they won the Cup in 2006. So then we go to Matt Murray, who, like you said, during his time as a quote-unquote NHL rookie, because he was technically a rookie for two seasons, wins the Cup in both of those years, um, started off as Flurry's backup with Pittsburgh uh, in 2015-16, I believe Flurry gets hurt in the early stages of the 2016 playoffs. Murray comes in, goes 15 and six, posts a GAA of 2.08, save percentage of 9.23, ends up hoisting the cup with his teammates that year. Next year, he goes 32, 10 and four, GAA slightly over 2.4, still gets a 9.23 save percentage. Um, I believe he got hurt early in that stage of the playoffs. Flurry comes in, plays well to his name. But after Fleury gets sold by Ottawa in Game 3 of the Eastern Conference Finals, Murray comes in, goes 7-3 and three the rest of the way, spins a gorgeous 937 save percentage with three shutouts, and the Penguins win the Cup again. In the last two seasons, though, he's either been injured, he's had some lower body injury history, also had three concussions, or Matt Murray has been inconsistent, not nearly as fearsome as he was in those two playoffs. Still, he's posted 56 wins the past two years, and the Penguins have been a good enough team for both those years to make the playoffs, but his GAA has been over 2.6 for two consecutive years. Save percentage back up to 919, which is good, but for a time in October and November, he was struggling to find his game. Casey DeSmith was the starter for a bit. So Matt Murray has had his up and down moments in his nhl career so you can say how good of a goaltender that bennington was how he was top five in goals against save percentage um he had five shutouts which in half a season is actually very solid um he went 12 and two regular season playoffs combined following a loss which is very very impressive and and i believe 12 of those 14 occasions he gave up two goals or less in the game following a loss 
So his ability to bounce back is out of this world fantastic. He has this drive, this work ethic um, that he's developed um, in over the past couple of years in the minors. Um, so that's why I also think it could also work out for him because he, he has the drive to be the best, um, just not taking anything for granted. Uh, the way he's um, kind of burst onto the NHL scene and all those up and down times and just believing in himself and believing in the process and, and just constantly working hard to try to get better every day as a goaltender. Um, I think that's one, uh, one reason why in the long term he's going to get paid. But until we see the numbers that back it up over two full NHL seasons, I think a two-year bridge deal was the best way to go for Jordan Bennington and the best way to go for the St. Louis Blues. And it'll be interesting if he does as well as he did uh, the next two seasons, because if he does, if you if you look at the free agency market for goalies in 2021, it is fully loaded with goaltending depth. And Bennington could find himself at the top of the list because out of all those free agent goaltenders, he's the youngest one. Yeah, that, that is a good... Uh, thanks for all that investigative uh, journalism there. Um, I, get, I, get to the, I get straight to the facts, Brett. I get straight to the facts. Of course, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, that I had kind of... I mean, Matt Murray has been inconsistent, but, like, if you're expecting, like, you know, consistent goaltending, that's very hard to find. In the NHL, I mean, he's still yeah, like, like look at Bobrovsky yeah. and Price the past couple of seasons. Even they've looked human, right? And they, um, and they kind of, um, you know, it's uh, yeah, that too. It's also scoring's been up. Um, I was just mm -hmm. gonna mention that it seems like Murray is um, of the three that you mentioned. Murray seems to be the most like. Uh, Jordan Bennington's situation um, yeah. because I mean I didn't really consider Andrew Hammond um, I sort of since since the Sens uh, did beat the Bruins I try to uh, block that out of my uh, ha uh, my mind uh, although I yeah, guess well, they, I should they, do the they, same they for Bennington that with Hammond in fairness that was all yeah. Greg Anderson oh that's true that's true oh right right that was Damn yeah, the, the hamburger one, the hamburger oh, no, no. run happened. That happened two years before Ottawa faced But but that was uh, right. The Bruins were going to make the playoffs, but then oh, Andrew yeah, Hammond. Oh right. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But then yeah, Andrew Hammond uh, had this run, and then it turned out to be a very big fluke, and then all of a sudden the Bruins self-constructed and right, like, yeah, traded everyone. Right, the final month of the season. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, so yeah, I, I blame Andrew Hammond for uh, the Bruins treating Dougie Hamilton. Basically, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the uh, so I don't really. I mean, I think from what you were talking about, it's like Andrew Hammond. Um, well, Cam Ward. I didn't realize that he wasn't really that good um, in the regular season. He just got hot at the right time, um, and then. Um, you know that's the same could be said for um, um, Andrew Hammond as well, um, but like for Matt Murray, you know he he was pretty good in the regular season, and so was Jordan Bennington. So 
Um, yeah, I feel and, like and Matt, and Matt Murray yeah. in the AHL in the OHL, he received a lot of high praise. So like people people knew about Matt Murray before right. he was an NHLer, and people knew about how good Jordan Bennington was before Jordan Bennington was in the NHL. Right. It's just that Matt Murray entered the league quicker than Bennington did. Well, which I, is why it was still kind of out of left field, where it's just like, wow. This Bennington right. kid, where did he come from? Well, so that's where I sort of disagree with you there. Because uh, Matt Murray, yes, I'll agree with you. People had like been talking about him before he was even in the NHL. Like he was, like I think he broke records in the AHL or something. I think like he that. had a, sh- a, a massive shutout yeah. streak in the AHL. That's how I first uh, heard about him. But in, yeah. in the OHL, he was he was uh, part of the solid right. foundation uh, with the Sioux Greyhounds when. Uh, Sheldon Keith was the coach with and Dubas was the general right, 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 right. there. So, but like for Jordan Bennington, yes, he was like, um, he was like, he had good numbers in the AHL. Um, and he was, uh, you know, he was also decent in the OHL. But like, you know, even before the season, Jake Allen's, you know, time was running out and people thought that. Billy Huso, who the Blues also have, was going to be the next goalie that they were going to use. Um, and there was even a point last year where the uh, Binnington, like they were going to, the Blues were going to send Binnington to the ECHL, but he kind of like refused to do that, and um, and he kind of like for, uh, willed his way onto the AHL team. The the uh, they had to like. Uh, talked to the Providence Bruins to put him on loan there in the AHL. So he wasn't necessarily as um, high up there in terms of the AHL. Like he earned his way there, but he kind of like refused to play in the ECHL um, for a time. Um, although I'm looking at his stats, he did play 40 games in the ECHL. Um, but for the most part, he was on the AHL, and those numbers are decent. Like he has, like, uh, t- uh, in Providence, he in twenty eight games, um, in twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, uh, he uh, played uh, in twenty eight games. He had a two point oh five GAA and a save percentage of nine twenty six. Um, you know, or. Uh, or even, I guess, on the Chicago Wolves, he wasn't that great. But, uh, like, 32 games. Um, in 32 games, he had a 2.71 GA and a save percentage of 9.11. So, like, something changed in there. So that's where, I, like, his AHL numbers aren't as impressive. And I could see, um, after a couple of games, where, like, Bennington starts to regress a bit. Because, um... <laughs> his numbers in 32 games are uh, are are impressive, of course, but um, that's different if you're going to be the guy and have to play 30 more games or 40. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think uh, what I meant to say is like when he was drafted, both Murray and Bennington, like like there was some hype to them. It's just that was there hype Matt to Bennington? Murray, Matt Murray rose up the ranks quicker than Bennington did. Bennington took a lot of seasoning in the minor leagues before he really got his shot, and that's okay. when things weren't going all that well for the Blues. And I, I I think at that point, you know, it's just like you know, 
we got nothing to lose. Might as well give the kid a shot and see what he can do. And ended right. up being a decision that saved their season and their Stanley Cup title. Right. But was there hype to Bennington when he was drafted? Uh, I mean, I in, see in that the, he was a third round thing. In in the OHL, uh, he had some good years with the Owen Sound attack. There there was definitely potential in his game. Uh, he went to the Memorial Cup. I think uh, Owen Sound uh, won the title that year as well. So they had to win their way to actually get into the tournament. Oh. And uh, Bennington was their number one goalie. So right, I guess <laughs> I that, that that was in 2011. So that was right. a while ago. Yeah, that was a while ago. Um, I, I just don't know if, like, people had really heard of him before then, but, uh, yeah, well, whatever. That's I neither <laughs> here nor there, I guess. That's neither here nor there, I guess, yeah. but... Yeah, um, um, just, just taking a look at, um, I mentioned the list of free agency goalies in 2021. I might as well run them off for you. Now that you include Jordan Bennington on this list, here's who else is available. Tuka Rask from your Boston Bruins. Frederick Anderson, Toronto Maple Leafs. Pecorine, Henrik Lundqvist, Devin Dubnik, Antti Ranta, Jake Allen, Philip Grubauer, Peter Morasic, Carter Hutton, Curtis McElwain. Yeah, that's uh, that's like a murderer's row there in goalies. I remember yeah, you were mentioning probably, that. Probably the strongest list of free agency goalies I've seen in my life. Yeah. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of old goalies too, but yeah. It's, it's, yeah, seen and that like I said, Bennington's going to be the youngest. He will be 27 years of age. All of the established number one goalies that I've listed – are in their 30s by that point. Right. Or more than 35, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's go to uh, Jacob Truba. Or rapid, we're going to rapid fire here. Uh, yeah. Jacob Truba uh, re-signs with, or not re, I guess not re-signs. He signs with the Rangers. Um, yeah. $8 million, uh, for seven years. Um, annual average value, of course, $8 million. Um, Yeah. It is always funny when I say that. Like it makes it seem like he's just like, wait, they got an all-star defenseman for eight million over seven years. Overall, Holy crap. yeah, yeah. Jeff Gordon doing work. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, this is actually a pretty good year. Uh, a pretty good year. Pretty good deal for him. Um, for both sides, you know, the Rangers. I mean, this gives them one step closer to signing. You know. Uh, to making the playoffs, they could low-key make it. Uh, the one thing I will say is that it's it might be a little bit high. Because, um, like, you know, for one thing, like, I guess on one hand, uh, Jacob Truba is uh, 25, uh, 25 year old, or he's going to be 25 when he's playing this year. Um, and... Um, so on one hand, he's very young still, and defense kind of take time when um in terms of development but um so he uh you know he had a career year last year uh with 50 points in 82 games he you know bufflin was injured for most of the year so it was you know truba was basically kind of took on the helm there and became the guy in winnipeg um it's gonna be a little bit different though in in new york though um and that's where I'm not sure if he's worth that much money. Um, I mean, obviously we'll see, and I, I'm sure I'll be proven wrong when it happens, but, you know, the Rangers don't have as good of a forward group as uh, the Winnipeg Jets do, um, and this was his uh, first season before, not, not like 
not past 40 points, but even past 30 points. He hasn't had, oh, I guess past 30 points. So, like, he has 50 points here. I guess I just see here that he had 33 points in 60 games in 2016. So I'm wrong there. But, like, you know, still, like, so his best year was last year in 50 points, but then the next closest was 33 points. Um, so that's quite a big difference, and that's where it's like he may be worthwhile. Uh, he may be worth eight million, but at the same time, it's like it's it's still a little bit of a risky signing for the Rangers. It's definitely a risk, but I can see. I I, I at least can see him maybe living up to it because yeah. I couldn't really see that prior to this year because like you said prior to this year 33 points in 60 games was his career high back in 2016-17 with the Jets and during that campaign to his credit Truba was two seconds shy of averaging 25 minutes per game on the year and he got over 100 hits over 100 blocked shots well, um, 154 shots on goal, which at the time was a career high. Um, and then you look at this past season when he posted 42 assists. His previous high in a season was 25. Um, first ever 50-point campaign. Finished in the NHL's top 15 amongst defensemen in both assists and points. So we're not just talking about the Winnipeg Jets now. We're talking about NHL defensemen. Uh, he had 211 stretch pass completions, seventh amongst NHL defensemen. With a fast team like the Rangers, that definitely helps their offensive attack, gives them another dimension to create scoring chances. Um, what's also interesting is that unlike 2016-2017, Jacob Truba had to be the guy in Winnipeg because he played in 40 more games than Dustin Bufflin because Dustin Bufflin was hurt, and while Dustin Bufflin was good when he was healthy he wasn't healthy the entire year didn't even play in like 50 games so that resulted in more power play exposure for jacob truba and jacob was rewarded he got 18 power play points 21 power play points combined in the five years previous to that for him so he had a big year on the power play also played over 200 shorthanded minutes which isn't anything new to him because he finished either first or second on the Jets in shorthanded minutes in each of his first three NHL seasons. He was tops amongst Winnipeg skaters in 2018-19 in shorthanded minutes. So the fact he can eat up time on the power play, eat up time on the penalty kill is good for the Rangers. Now, the Jets' power play last year was in the NHL's top five, but they also had a bottom 10 penalty kill and inconsistent results on the penalty kill the past couple of years. The Rangers were 27th out of 31 teams on the penalty kill last year. So it's too early to say if Jacob Truba will make them better on special teams, but I think a big part of the unknown is that we haven't seen enough of Jacob Truba as the leader because the only time we got to really see it was when Bufflin was hurt and Morrissey was hurt late into last season. So now that Truba's entering his seventh NHL season, it'll be interesting to see how he makes the Rangers defense better. You also had a guy like Adam Fox, who is also right-handed, plays more of a pure offensive game than Truba, also a rookie. So there's probably going to be some growing pains for Adam Fox at various points of next season. 
But again, Truba can help out with the power play. You've got Brady Shea under contract for the next five years. You have Ke'Andre Miller coming into the fold at some point. So that what that tells me is there are going to be some changes for the New York Rangers roster-wise. I think Kevin Shattenkirk looks extremely expendable now that Adam Fox and Jacob Truba have entered the picture. Um, the only Ranger players with no moves that protect them automatically in the expansion draft are now Jacob Truba, Mika Zibanejad, and Artemi Panarin, who they signed uh, on July 1st. You have guys like Krasov, Shazurkin, Adam Fox, Kapokako, all exempt from the expansion draft, so you don't have to worry about them. But the Rangers are going to have cap issues because you have restricted free agents like Brendan Lemieux still left to sign, Pavel Buchnevich, who has top six potential, but an arbitration hearing coming up soon, uh, Anthony D'Angelo, who had a 30-point season last year, uh, Shattenkirk Stahl, Brendan Smith, who's been healthy scratch territory, yeah. um, under contract for the next two years. Um, I believe over the next 24 months, um, those three defensemen combine, um, Rangers going to have to pay those three defensemen combined around $27 million over the next 24 months. And all three of those defensemen are probably not locked to be re-signed. And they also have a lot of strings attached, no moves, no trades to their deals. So trading them is not going to be easy. So if they make any roster moves, it's probably going to be guys like Chris Kreider, guys like Vlade Nemesnikov, guys like Pavel Bichnevich, guys like Jesper Faust. I think those are probably the guys that have the most uncertain future with the Rangers, just because even though the Rangers got Panarin, got Truba, got Adam Fox in the full Capo Caco as a lottery pick, um, and a lot of guys coming from the KHL to help their roster, I think they're still technically in rebuild territory, so if, if, if they can get any future assets that make their team better in the long run for a guy like Chris Kreider, um, I think they'd be wise to go down that trade route and continue... Yeah to build their team in the future because I think that's where the Rangers are going to excel. It's their future players, future developments. Yeah, I mean, I think I could I, I could see maybe Kevin Shattenkirk maybe having a bounce back now that the pressure's like he's not relied upon to be the guy there. Yeah. yeah um, so I could see him having kind of like a resurgence in that sense, but yeah, no, I mean, you, you, do, you do have a point in terms of, like, Jacob Trupa is going to be the guy there. Like, no, he doesn't really have a ton of competition out there. I remember hearing that, like, the mo uh, like, last year, Rangers defenseman, the best uh, defenseman in terms of points was Brady Shea. And Brady Shea only had, like, 30, 30 points. Um in 82 games or 20 he only had 25 points in in 78 games um exactly so um so yeah so Truba of course helps their defensive end of things but um so that's that's where it's it's a little bit tricky but at the same time you know um yeah, I, I could I, I feel like it's just a little bit too much at the moment I'm not saying that Truba like like in a couple of years from now, I'll be I I'll eat my words, 
Um, I could see that happening too, but at the moment, it's, it's a li I'm a little bit hesitant on giving Truba that much money. Um, all right, let's go to uh, the next topic here. Uh, so this is kind of like a cap move in a way, but uh, we have a trade here. Uh, Milan Lucic is going to the Calgary Flames um, and a 2020 conditional third round pick as well is going to the Calgary Flames. Um, and then uh, the Edmonton Oilers get James Neal. Um, the conditional pick is the biggest transferred if James Neal scores 21 goals and Milan Lucic scores 10 or fewer than, uh, 10 goals or fewer than uh, Neal. Um, no, uh, well, the, well, the more accurate prediction is uh, James Neal has to record at least 21 goals this season and Lucic has to score at said. least at least 10 fewer goals at least 10 fewer goals than James Neal both of those have to be met Flames get the pick if that's both are I, met if not no pick is exchanged that's what and I also the Oilers uh, pay 12.5% of Lucic's remaining salary but that's what I said okay I, I think I think you said ten or fewer goals than James Neal, but the condition is at least ten fewer. I'm pretty sure. But isn't that the same thing? Uh, I just said ten or fewer, or at least ten fewer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said the same thing. Anyways, um, I, I guess there. I guess one team's banking on James Neal to have a great year and Lucci's to continue to suck. So yeah. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> um, that's, the, that's the short end of it. Right, well, yeah, this is, like, an interesting deal for both sides. For the Flames, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of, it's kind of trading, you know, both James Neal and Milan Lucic weren't working out for their their other team uh, that they just Especially got traded Lucic. from. Especially Lucic, yeah. Especially Lucic um, with his cap hit, but, like, James Neal, like, was being usurped by uh, Elias Lindholm, um and you know he sometimes he was healthy scratch in the playoffs so it's like um you know what's the point of doing that but then Milan Lucic was like expected to be the the line mate for Connor McDavid and that never actually materialized um Milan Lucic also has a no movement clause which will be interesting uh during the Seattle draft but I don't know if it's going to be that big of a deal um this is uh you know, I know people online are saying that Calgary, uh, like they don't, they're not sure why Calgary got this this pick, but or like why the Calgary did this, but um, I don't think it's that bad. I feel like it's about even. I think I was reading a stat that like uh, James, like in the past two years, James Neal and Milan Lucic have like virtually the same stats. Um, and I mean, sure, James Neal will have a line mate, like his center will either be Connor McDavid or, um, or, uh, what's his face, uh, Leon Dreisaitl, or maybe, uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, but, yep. um, it's going, you know, like, so he'll have more opportunity there. Because uh, he doesn't have to compete with like the Johnny Gaudreaus, the Matt Kachucks, and the Elias Lindholms, but at the same time, um, you know, the Oilers 
don't know what they're doing really so it's like i i i it's it's one of those things where like until the oilers prove to me that they know what they're doing then i'll be okay with their moves but um at the moment james neal is also like uh, another power forward that's not uh, suitable for the nhl as well so it's like um it's kind of like treat it's not like that's not like say that James like the Oilers made off uh, with everything because they do have to pay more because um, they still have to pay Milan Lucic seven fifty a thousand um, and they have to pay and James Neal is currently being paid more than Milan Lucic is just by a bit so they do have to pay more in this trade but they I mean they do have James Neal now um, who. Might be better than Milan Lucic. Um, as for the Flames, this could, you know, this is added more protection for both, like, small guys, like, you know, uh, Johnny Goudreau um, and uh, I, I guess Matthew Kachuk doesn't really need protection, but, like, Sean Monaghan, um, those guys. Um, the interesting thing is, is, like, Calgary just stockpiles all these left-wingers, though, is they have Johnny Goudreau and uh, Matt, Matthew Kachuk. They just got Milan Lucic. They uh, drafted Jacob Peltier, who's a left winger, um, in the QMJHL. So it's like, um, it's just crazy to me that they have all these left wingers all of a sudden. Um, but like, I don't know. I, I feel like Milan Lucic, like it's a similar situation to uh, Shannon Kirk in, the, in New York. Um, you know, maybe he'll do better in a in a lesser role um, in Calgary, where he'll be on the third line and he'll um, he'll be like the uh, a bottom six guy there, and um, and maybe make stuff happen that, that way. Um, and uh, there's less pressure in that sense. Um, of course, like <laughs> if you're paying five million for a uh, third line guy, that's not great, but um, it's better than, uh, you know, David Backus, for instance. Yeah. So, you're right, the fact that Elias Lindholm got the ice time that James Neal didn't, that definitely factored into why he was a bad fit in Calgary. And I actually mentioned it in last year's season preview that one of Elias Lindholm and James Neal is going to reap the rewards of playing on the top line. The either is going to get the leftovers and not nearly as much offense production will be going their way. And Elias Lindholm ended up getting the good role. He had 27 goals, 78 points, 28 power play points. Regularly paired with Gaudreau Monaghan on the top line, top power play unit. Um, over 20 minutes of ice time per game as a top line right winger. Um, you look at James Neal, just under 15 minutes per game, so that's roughly a five-minute difference compared to Lindholm. Yeah. So not surprisingly, he only gets seven goals and 19 points in 63 games. Like you said, non-factor in the playoffs. Um, healthy scratch, playing, too. What, yeah, like, yeah, healthy scratch, too. Like, they're not even putting you on the ice yeah. at all. And when you are on the ice, you're playing along guys like Mark uh, Jankowski, Sam Bennett, Austin Zarnick. Right. Other guys that would typically get bottom six minutes. But James Neal got 41 fewer shots than Elias did, which when you consider his average ice time per game and how he was utilized, that's still actually not bad for a 31-year-old. 
Um, I'm not going to go out there and say, oh, yeah, James Neal's going to get 10 power play goals and 30 power play points with the Oilers, and he's going to have a resurgent right. bounce-back season that everyone's going to talk about for eons. But I think the upside is still there. Like, when he was averaging 40 to 45 points in his last year with Nashville, his only year in Vegas, he still recorded 202 shots on goal in both of those years. And during that time, he averaged over 17 minutes per game. He needs to be out there. He needs to get opportunities to score. You need to give him the puck, and you need to let him shoot. Right now, the value for James Neal to be a decent top six forward, it still exists. And he wasn't playing with the all-star talent in Calgary that in Edmonton, he probably will because they need depth forwards on the wing that can help out Connor McDavid, Brian Nugent Hopkins, Leon Dreisaitl. And I think James Neal is a perfect fit for that. Um, and the fact that Elias Lindholm is an all-around player, like Lindholm is second, uh, Lindholm was second in shorthanded, or he was in the top three in shorthanded minutes. James Neal was near the bottom, also near the top five in total power play minutes so Elias Lindholm was being put in a lot of situations James Neal was you know just throw throw him out every second or third shift and then just get him off like it in the power play penalty kill situations James Neal wasn't utilized all that often but you're still looking at a guy that scored at least 20 goals in 11 of his 12 NHL seasons the only time he did it was this past year when he got seven He's been a 20-goal scorer on four different teams. There, there is still upside with James Neal. When you look at Milan Lucic, Milan Lucic, during his years with the Edmonton Oilers, I know that he is an intimidating physical presence. He can get you, like, uh, over 200 hits. Um, he's done that a bunch the past five or six seasons. Um 240 250 hits in a lot of those years but there I, I feel like there are a lot of other options at less at a less cheaper price that could bring that type of grit that mainland Lucic brings maybe not the grit along with the physical intimidation that Lucic has because like if you put Lucic on the ice and a team's taking like three to four whacks at Johnny Goudreau's hands Mainland Lucci is probably the type of guy that's going to sit your butt down and say, try that again. Just try it again right. and, see, and see what happens. I I think with the loss of Garnet Hathaway um, and Furland the season before, the Flames lost a lot of that hard-nosed grit, but Lucci adds that other kind of grit that other teams fear, where if you try something – you're probably going to think twice about trying it again because you know Lucic is probably going to be after your ass if you try it. Um, I don't think the Flames had that kind of fear, and I think that resulted in being more prone to being pushed around, and, and I think maybe in Colorado they lacked a little bit of that, so I can see how Lucic helps there. But you're not paying Lucic $6 million per year to just hit and intimidate. He's he's being paid to be a top six forward and get like 50 to 60 points and 20 to 25 goals. And when you look at how well he did in his first year with Edmonton and you look at 
his results in his what ended up being his final year with the Oilers. It's absolutely staggering. His first year with Edmonton, he got 23 goals and 50 points, 11 goals and 24 points with the extra man, which is by far and away his best power play points and goals in a season. But you look at his numbers this past season. He went through, I think, a stretch of 40-plus games without scoring yeah. a goal. He, uh, I think, I, I believe, compared to 2016-17, his average time on ice per game dropped by almost four minutes. Two minutes. He went from 50, he oh. went from 50 points in Three year minutes. one. Three minutes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because he had but thirteen, still, he had thirteen minutes uh, this year, and then he had sixteen minutes last year. Yeah, and I think before it was it was a bit more than that. Seventeen, but, yeah. But but yeah, still a dramatic drop uh, in, in ice time. And you, you look at his his drop from his first year to his final year in Edmonton. He went from fifty in year one, fifty points in year one, to just twenty last year. Um, didn't even register 80 shots last year. He's recorded 11 power play points the last two seasons combined. That's not even half of his power play points from his first year in Edmonton. His six goals in 79 games last year was a single season low for him as an NHLer. He just turned 31 in June. And when you look at his numbers when he was with Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl in 2017-18, he still got 10 goals and 34 points in 82 games with all-star talent. And now you're putting him potentially on the third line when he's not playing with the Flames top six forwards. I'm sorry, but I just don't see a bounce back season from Lucic. And I definitely see it with James Neal because if Milan Lucic and, and we've talked about how power forwards like David Backus and Dustin Brown have have really suffered an offensive decline because of the way they play and, and Lucic is in the same boat. You add that and you add on where he's probably going to be playing on the Calgary Flames moving forward and the production that he had in year two when he was playing with the Oilers' best players. I definitely see a bounce back here for James Neal. I can't fathom a bounce back here with Lucic and Calgary. I just can't. Offensively, it's offensively i i just don't see it uh see that's where i kind of disagree with you not because i don't think that like milan lucic can bounce back but i don't know if james neal will bounce back um he hasn't like i'm just looking at james neal's stats um and his best year um recently was in nashville in 2015 2016 58 mm. points in 82 games. Um, yeah. His uh, time on ice kind of changed drastically. Um, after that point, he had like 40, like, and 58 points isn't even that great for someone like a James Neal. Um, so, like, you can make the case that his best years were in Pittsburgh. Um, and also, yeah. not you know, not to mention that Calgary is a better team than Edmonton is. Um, so like James, like, so I feel like if James Neal couldn't get it to work in Calgary, I'm not so like, yeah, obviously McDavid helps and, or who, even if they put him on the second line, 
I'm sure uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins will help. But if he can't, he can't make, like, I trust Bill Peters enough that, like, if he was healthy scratched and wasn't good enough to make it on the Calgary Flames roster, I just don't see how he, um, like, it, it doesn't seem likely that he's going to be a, um, a, like, what we expect him to be in Edmonton to bounce back. And, um, yeah, like, I agree with you. Milan Lucic will uh, probably not bounce back, especially since uh, I'm mostly taking it because, like, there's no chance that he's going to supplant uh, Johnny Gaudreau or Matthew Kachuk on the top two lines. It's mostly just because he's a left winger there. So I don't, I don't see how he's going to get the minutes there. But for James Neal, yeah, he'll get the minutes, but he he's he plays a very similar style to Milan Lucic, which is, like, power forward. And I just... Like, and I just feel like the power forwards in general are not as valued as they once were. Um, and they're not good anymore, really. Um, so uh, so they're kind of like dying out now. And I feel like James Neal is also um, not going to bounce back as, as well either. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think I ever said that James Neal was going to return to form like he did in Pittsburgh, and I'm not saying that at all. I think a bounce back here for James Neal would be like 20 to 25 goals, 40 to 45, maybe 50 points. But I think that's definitely more than what Milan Lucic is capable of. I think Milan Lucic is set up to fail in Calgary right off the bat because he's not going oh, to be in a position where he can thrive right. just like James Neal wasn't in a position to thrive in Calgary as well. And okay. on top of on top of on top of how he could be slotted in the offense, Milan Lucic has an 8 team trade and a 10 team trade list in the final in the second yeah. last year and the final year of his deal respectively until then he's got a full no move right. and a bad cap hit james neal just has a bad cap hit that's it he's still going to be tough to trade but if you it, it, i don't know if if milan lucic doesn't find his form and he turns out to be a bust for the calgary flames how are you going to trade that contract I like mean, it was it was tough even for Edmonton to do that. Right. No, I, that I agree with. His contract is not great, of course, but like, I just don't like you know like, even still, like he's going to be a good depth guy for them. So yeah. like, they're not going to expect him to be like put up fifty points, um, because he's going to be on the third line because they have, uh, you know, you know, Monahan, Gaudreau, Lindholm, Kachuk. Backland, so they're they're not expecting him to be like a point producer for them. They're just expecting him to be like the aggressive guy um, on the third line to handle all the top line whenever you know like be the defensive guy uh, when when they're like the other team's top line is on there, so he can play defense or whatever. So it's like he's I, so in that sense, I just don't think like. He could bounce back from that and where he could just focus on his defensive game and just play a different role than what we're used to seeing of him. But that doesn't mean that he's going to, like, you know, 
he, he he's just a different role than what we're used to and so he does provide value for that of course the cap hit is a little bit too much for that kind of role but i could see that happening where he is he plays a lesser role um on 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 the flames just because of the log jam they have there yeah i i think both of us can agree neither of these players are going to live up to their contracts i don't think that's possible at all um, at the same time, I don't think Brad Living should be on the chopping block for this decision, as yeah. Ryan Lambert of Yahoo Sports is is saying. He, he thinks it was a fireball offense to trade for Lucic in the first place and give up on James Neal a year after you signed him to that contract. So I definitely think Living deserves to be questioned. Fired, that's a bit of a stretch right now, but definitely questioned. I, I don't know why you go from trying to get a top six guy like Jason Zucker to, eh, we'll just trade me. We'll just trade for Milan Lucic and uh, give up James Neal. So yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think there are better options to find secondary scoring and I would have taken Zucker over Lucic and Harvey. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that's fair. Um, yeah, I think we're kind of in agreement, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I just, yeah, whatever. All right, let's let's go to another topic uh, before we talk ourselves into circles again. Um, all right, speaking of a former Calgary Flame player and Western, this is also related to Western Canada. We kind of talked about this a bit uh, last episode because it just happened as we were recording. But uh, Michael Furland is going to the Canucks, uh, three point five million annual average value for four years. Um, there, this one is I, I don't mind this deal at all really for the Canucks because they kind of need you know besides Besser, Pedersen, and Horvat, they don't really are and I guess Bearshi when he's healthy, but like they don't really have any like depth there. So Furland kind of provides that grit there, and that should help them um, in uh, in their. I, I still don't know if they'll make the playoffs, but it does help them in, in that regard where they'll have a decent top two uh, right winger um, in their lineup. Um, someone who can, and he can add that, like, you know, intimidation factor um, that, that the Canucks need. Yeah, I, I think Furland is actually, actually the kind of player that best fits the mold of the Vancouver Canucks. Um, I remember when he first started out in Calgary in a playoff series against Vancouver yeah. where he was just really getting under the, uh, under the Canucks skin and just intimidating them, uh, really throwing the body That's around, right. shipping in that. with the odd goal or the odd assist here and there. Um he really caught my eye during that playoff series um, when when the Flames won that in six games, I believe. Um, and and that was the kind of guy he started off as, uh, kind of a hard-nosed guy, hit a lot, could, could chip in with some secondary scoring. But he's kind of evolved over the past two years as a guy that you can put on the top line, and we really saw it in Carolina. Um, he averaged just over 15 minutes per game in his final season with the Flames, averaged actually 55 seconds less per game in his only season with the Hurricanes, so that was a year later. But even then, he was four goals shy of equaling his 21 from his final season in Calgary, a single point shy of his career-high 41 from his final season with Calgary. 
Um, he posted 12 more shots this year than he did the previous one, along with 182 hits. Um, also had 12 goals and 19 points on the power play where his past two seasons combined. So special teams wise, he's been better. But I think it's important to note who he was playing with when he was really getting his offensive game going. In the first quarter of the regular season this past year, 2018-2019, he had 10 goals and 14 points in 21 game, uh, in 20 games. Um, he had four goals and 14 points in 19 games in quarter three. Pretty solid numbers. During those two quarters in particular, he spent a lot of time with top six forwards, particularly Sebastian Ajo and Tebu Teravainen. In quarters two and four combined, he had 12 points. And during that time, he was playing with guys like Lucas Walmart, Jordan Martin, Clark Bishop, and Victor Rask, who is now in Minnesota. So if you put him in a top six role, even averaging 14, 15 minutes per game, this guy's going to do some damage. Yeah. But like JT Miller, not a guy you place in a penalty killing situation. Um, I, I think where he plays matters. So... I think in order to really get the best out of Mikhail Furlan, he's going to have to be in a top six role. And I think that kind of restricts um, what you can do with your bottom six if Michael Furlan has to play in a top six role. The one thing I don't get is the strings attached. Like a full no move the first two years. Um, he's also got, let's see here on the conditions. He's got a 10 team no trade in year three, 18 no trade in year four so the average annual value is perfect i like it 3.5 million per year um i i like that a lot it's just the the no moves and the no trades are like bottom six forwards you give it to guys like jay beagle and antoine roussel the previous offseason yeah. uh when you gave it to louis erickson when he still had top six value now he's a bottom six forward and he's got a bad cap hit and that uh, no trade clause it, it, i i just don't get why the Canucks do that with their bottom six? Why they feel the need to add like a no trade in there? It, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me because the key for the Canucks is down the road when you got guys like Petrus Palmu, Reed Boucher, um, Francis Perron, who uh, could have some NHL potential, Cole Lynn, Zach McEwen developing in NHL Utica. When you bring those guys up, you look at guys like Antoine Roussel and Jay Beagle and Tyler Mott and Louis Erickson, and and you you just look at how loaded they are at center and guys like Besser and Peterson and yeah. Horvat, Adam Gaudet. All of those guys are are playing top nine minutes. They're top nine forwards, and you you look at guys like. Like I said, Roussel, Beagle, now Furland, who is a fringe top six, bond six guy. I, I, I just, I just kind of struggle to. I, I just struggle to understand what Jim Benning is doing when he gives out those type of contracts to bottom six forwards. Like, when you're in contention mode in the next couple of years, you gotta think, hmm. Are the pieces I have today going to help me when I need to win, when I'm expected to win, 
Are guys like Antoine Roussel and Jay Beagle a part of that vision? Are guys like Tyler Mont a part of that vision? I think the Canucks are going to be forced to to trade someone like the names I just mentioned or a Brandon Sutter or um, maybe walking away from someone like Nic- yeah. Nikolai Goldobin, who's an RFA right now. It, 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 I think it's kind of forced their hand in that regard by signing Furland that they're going to have to trade somebody and that's going to be tough to do when you're figuring out who to keep and who to trade if you're giving bottom six boards no trade clauses. It, it, yeah. It's something that I just don't understand. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this last year when, when they did sign Roussel and Beagle. Um, that makes no sense. But, I mean, this one, I mean, this one kind of makes sense for, for, like, Furland is, like, at least can play in a top six role. Um, so uh, this one, I don't have as much trouble with, although I remember, uh, I think Dmitry Filipovich was saying something about like how, um, in 2021-22, uh, that's going to be the year that Elias Pedersen, Quinn Hughes, and Thatcher Demko are all going to be RFAs. Um, It's actually 20. 2020-21, but yeah, you're right. Uh, Peter Peterson, uh, Hughes, and uh, Demko are all going to need new contracts. Yeah, that's what I said. No, you said 2021-2022. It's actually the year before that. No, it's not, actually. I'm looking at their cap
uh, for sure. Oh, and Jacob Markstrom's going to be a, a free agent next year. So yeah, they have a they have a bit of cap space that way. But it is interesting that Tyler Myers, J.T. Miller, and Michael Furland, who they all signed this year, are going past that that limit um, that we just talked about. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. So they are they're in relatively good shape, but it's at the same time they have to start thinking about that um, at the same time. So uh, the other big news, I guess, because of uh, you know, I guess this is Furlan's former team. Oh, by the way, before we leave Furlan, the only, I mean, I think this is a good signing for the Canucks because just purely because of their depth reasons, like you mentioned. Um, but uh, the only. The only worry I do have with Ferlin though is that like he wasn't that good last year for Carolina. Um, I mean, of course he had like forty points in seventy one games and with only fourteen minutes of average ice time, so that's not bad, obviously, but yeah. um it's just uh like if you're gonna give him more t- like time on ice in Vancouver, I'm just not sure um how that's going to go. Um, that just makes me a little bit nervous on that in that regard. But at the same time, it's like 3.5 million annual average value for a top six guy is going to be is not is not bad for for that kind of thing. So yeah, like I I, me- I mentioned it uh, in my earlier analysis, and I'll mention it again. It all depends on who he plays with. If he plays with top six talent like Peterson or Horvat or whoever it is, yeah. I think Mikhail Furland regardless if he averages 14 minutes per game or 16 or 17 minutes per game if he plays with the right guys he'll do well if he doesn't get the top six minutes he'll just be average yep um yeah that's fair um all right let's go to uh ryan dezingle he signs with carolina um this uh thing um this was uh, 3.75 million for two years um, in Carolina um, I don't know Carolina might actually be decent this year um, I, I mean obviously they made the conference finals so that's not a huge hot take there but um, you know this this adds to their depth because like last year it was pretty much the top line and no one else really so um, you know maybe at times they like they, uh, you know, and also Svechnikov is going to be in and probably take a larger role too. Um, they also have Eric Halla as well in Carolina. So, um, you know, you have Sebastian Ajo and Jordan Stahl as your centers. And so Zingle could um, have some decent centers to play around with. Um, so he could have some good deployment in that regard. Um, but yeah, no, I like this deal for Carolina. Yeah, this is an interesting deal as well um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, just how well uh, Brian Dezingle was able to do on Ottawa's top line and um, the offensive upside that he does possess. Um, just taking a look at his stats, um, before getting traded to Columbus, he had 22 goals and 44 points in 57 games, uh, mostly spent time with Matt Duchesne. Uh, and continue to spend time with Matt Duchesne when both of them made the move to Columbus together. The Ohio native, in his time at the Jackets, had four goals and 12 points over 21 games. Was an early healthy scratch uh, during the postseason, during the early parts of that, but 
His shooting percentage with Ottawa and with Columbus was still between 15 and 16%. So um, he was still fairly efficient. Um, in 2017-18, he had 41 points um, and 23 goals on 136 shots. So again, relatively efficient scorer there. Um, he equaled his 41 points from 2017-18 and then surpassed it by 15 um, 56 points in 78 games between Ottawa and Columbus. Um, his ice time actually increased by 19 seconds compared to 2017-18. He got a couple more shots on goal. He had a 23 shot improvement. Um, five goals and 11 points with the, uh, the extra man as well last year. So any scoring depth on special teams that maybe Furland left behind could be replaced easily with the Zingle. Yeah. Um, although he's, I, I, is he a, I think he plays the same position as Furland. He, he plays wing, but. I think uh, uh, Zingle plays left wing, Furland plays right wing. Okay, yeah. yeah. So winger, but not the same side. Yeah. Anyway. But still, um, I think he has a bigger offensive ceiling than Furland. The term is solid. I like the AAV. It's around the same as Furland. I think a bit less too. Yeah. The two concerns I have with this signing, um, here's the first one. If you look at the Hurricanes at left wing, you have Stashnikov probably spending most of his time on line one. Either Ryan Dezingle or Eric Halla, who was acquired from Vegas, uh, will be playing on line three and outside of the top six. You look at Eric Halla, his first year in Vegas, he spent most of his time with James Neal, Alex Tuck, and David Perron. He had 29 goals and 55 points in 76 games along with 11 goals and 19 points on the power play. He's likely on the line with Jordan Stahl and, Nieder, and Nino Niederreiter if he's within the top six. Yep. If he's not, he could spend most of his time with guys like Jordan Martinuk and Lucas Walmart. So it's one of those cases where, like I said, in Calgary with Neil and uh, Elias Lindholm, where one player reaps the rewards, the other gets the leftovers. Right. So I'm interested to see who benefits more, Brian DeSingle or Eric Halla. The other, the other concern I have about this deal is, um, and I found this uh, out from Sean Tierney. You can follow him. Uh, you can follow uh, his work at Charting Hockey on Twitter. Uh, he researched all the players from last season and ranked them from the greatest to least impact on shots becoming goals. Duchesne was just outside the top ten when it comes to the greatest impact. Dezingle ranked fifteenth on that list. So I'm curious as to how much of an impact Duchesne had on Ryan's success and if Ryan can be just as successful in Carolina without Matt Duchesne. So uh, those are the two concerns that I have. But overall, I think uh, I think Ryan has a lot of potential in Carolina and he can do some very good things there. Yeah, it should be interesting to see. It's an interesting situation there in Carolina. Um, all right, let's go to the next uh, list here on the rapid fire or item, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Henry Yokiaru, uh, I never know how to pronounce his name, but um, he's going to Buffalo for Alex Nylander. Um, this is kind of an interesting move. I'm not really sure why Chicago does this. I mean, I know that they have, like, they recently acquired Olimata and Calvin DeHaan. Um, so like they had a bit of a log jam in the defenseman stuff, but like still you you're gonna trade Joki Aru, who's one of your best uh, defensive prospects out there, um, for Alex Nylander. I guess what they're they're hoping for is that Nylander is going to be a um, 
like kind of like a project just like Dylan Strom was maybe to to bring cat for a lesser extent but like you know so maybe they think that they can develop Nylander that the uh the Buffalo Sabres couldn't but at the same time when you look at like Alex Nylander's stats um in the AHL they're like not good so um so it, it, it is a little strange to be making this kind of trade uh, because just based off of pedigree, because, uh, I mean, sure, Nylander was a top 10 pick and Yoki Yaru was, like, a, uh, was pick, drafted in the later, um, you know, in the later round. Like, in, um, I think he was still a first-round pick, but, like, 30th overall or something like that. So, um, but... But still, like, just from what we've seen, Joe Hiaru seems to be the better player um, at the moment. So it, it, it does seem weird to have this one-for-one one type trade um, when Alex Nylander looks like he may be a bust. Um, so this is where I'm, I'm perplexed at what Stan Bowman is doing here. Yeah, so I'm just taking a look at what Yoki Haru did in his only season with the Blackhawks. Averaging a shed over a shed under 19 minutes per game outside yep. the NHL's top 100 defenseman, posted 9.16 outlet pass completions per game, ranking him 44th amongst NHL defensemen. Averaging 2.21 stretch pass completions per game, top 30 defensemen. Um, 48 points as a WHL rookie defenseman, had a 71 point explosion the following year. Uh, 17 points in three games with AHL Rockford last year, 12 assists in his first 38 NHL games. I get that Adam Bjorkvist also plays the right side. Yep. And maybe he's got more upside than Yoki Haru does, but still, like, even if you have Bjorkvist as your top guy on the right side like why not have Yoki Haru as your second pairing because like right now you have I believe on the right side you have um I think it's Seabrook um yeah I, I it, it, anyways if you if I can you look, look at I can look right this for right, you if you want um yeah you can, you can take a look at daily face off but I'm pretty sure Connor Murphy is their third pairing defenseman on the right side yeah. which yikes um, uh, Brent Seabrook and then Eric Gustafson right um, yeah so. Brent Seabrook Eric Gustafson Connor Murphy and then on so their like, left side it's Duncan Keith Calvin DeHaan and Oleman Oleman yeah so it's just so suspect still on the right side. Even if you add Adam Bjorkvist, you could use a guy like Yoki Haru to yep. really round out the right side there. So I really don't get uh, why why the Hawks would give up on a guy that uh, they they really um, that they, that they really thought could be a good useful player for them. And I, I will say the, I I don't uh, question this. Sorry, um, uh, add to your point. Sorry. Yeah, no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I guess I did. Okay. I um. But yeah, I the interesting thing about Yokiaru was is that I remember when Quenville got fired towards the end of the year, I think like just because I had him in my fantasy uh, <laughs> like deep keeper league, um, like I I noticed that Yokiaru was being played less 
um, when Colleton became the head coach. So I feel like that that was more the reason why I feel like maybe he just ran out of favor um, or like Colleton and Yokiaru didn't really get along for whatever reason um, in Chicago. So maybe that had more to do with it than um, than anything. Yeah, that, that, that is a good point. Now that I think about it, yeah. so definitely the coach-player relationship uh, could be a game-changer there. Yeah. But I, I don't question this trade simply because of talent. I question this trade based on what the Hawks value versus what the Hawks need. Yeah. And you, you take a look at Alex Nylander's stats uh, before he signed his entry level. Um, he had 10 goals and 28 points in 21 games of the World Juniors, spread over three tournaments. He had 28 goals and 75 points in his lone OHL season, um, added six goals and 12 points in six postseason games on top of that. But you look at his NHL stats, only three goals and six points in 19 games, minus nine rating, spread over three seasons. His best season in the AHL was last year, and he got 12 goals and 31 points in 49 games. There's been small strides of progression but when you look at how dominant he was as a junior player compared to when he turned pro it's a bit underwhelming his offensive stats like Nylander is a project at this point he's not a sure thing you don't know exactly what he's going to become you hope he becomes what you want him to become but you look at the amount of options that the Hawks have on the wings. You have Dominic Abolic on the left side. He yep. scored at least 25 goals in four straight years overseas, uh, 57 points in 50 games last year in Switzerland, right. um, and 12 points at the World Championships this past year. He's listed as a third-line left winger. So unless you uh, unless um, you trade Brandon Saad, if you plan on putting Alex Nylander on the left side or or the right wing, which he can play both sides, that's great. But you have to trade one of your wingers if you're going to put Alex Nylander in a top six role. And I think the most likely name is Brandon Sod. It's definitely not going to be Alex Dabrinkit because he's definitely got more upside than Brandon Sod does. Yeah. Um, Dylan Secura's got a bit of upside to him, too. Brendan Berlini as a third-line right winger. He could be something there, too. It's going to be tough on paper for Alex Nylander to crack that roster outside of maybe Ryan Carpenter, who's their fourth-line left winger. So I, I just don't get why they would go for a project like Alex Nylander and trade away a guy that could be a very valuable top-four defenseman for them down the road. I... I think this is a massive win for the Buffalo Sabres when you, you take a look at what Yoki Haru provides and what he could bring down the road. Yeah. I think the most logical explanation as to why the Hawks would do this is the upcoming expansion draft because Keith and Seabrook are both protected right now. So are Kane and Taze. Yeah, that's a good point. So if they went the decision to protect more of their young forwards, they could only protect one more defenseman. And if they decide to go and protect multiple defensemen, like more than just um, one, so at least two, the most forwards they could protect is two. Yeah. So if trading Yokiaru, who wouldn't be exempt in the expansion draft, Bjorkvist would be exempted. 
if trading Yuki Haru makes it easier for them to protect more forwards, then I guess that makes sense. But you're still giving up on a top four defenseman just a year into his NHL career. And yeah. I, I think that's a risk that they're going to regret. I also found out this very staggering stat that I don't think Stan Bowman should be proud of. From twenty one, from 2011 sorry, to 2017, here are Chicago's first-round picks. Mark McNeil, Philip Deneau, Thibaut Tiravainen, Ryan Hartman, Nick Schmaltz, Henry Yoki Haru, all traded. Yep. Not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Nick Schmaltz uh, and Thibaut Tiravainen and Philip Deneau, who's shown some promise, too. Um, yeah, that's not that's not good yeah. to trade those. But like all the other ones you said, like eh, all right, maybe maybe there isn't something there. But yeah, um, Teravainen really hurts right now. Yeah, Teravainen does hurt. Um, the uh, but let's just quickly talk about the Sabers. Uh, you know all this stuff because this does also doesn't make sense for them either because they recently, especially since they acquired uh, Brandon Montour in the trade deadline. Uh, they uh, also traded for Colin Miller, um, who are both right-handed defensemen. Uh, they also have Zach Bogazian in the in the system. I think they have a couple of other right-handed defensemen that aren't um, Yogi Aru, uh, Brandon Montour. Casey Nelson is another one. Rasmus Ristolainen. Um, oh yeah, Rasmus Ristolainen I think is the main one. So I get. I, so I wonder if Rasmus Ristolainen. This means that Rasmus Ristolainen is going to be traded um, sometime this season, or maybe in this off season, because especially since you get like Joe Yarhu, Colin Miller, and Brandon Montour, um, and those three could easily be. Um, in your top six, um, or you know, could easily be top four play uh, defensive pairman in yeah, any other he, he, on a, on a lot of other teams um, that need defensemen. So I wonder if Ristolainen, um is gone. I feel like this is inevitable now, um, where uh, Ristolainen is going to go somewhere else. Hundred percent, he's going somewhere yep. else. Like even if you take Bogosian out of the equation. If you keep Ristolainen, you have Montour, Miller, Ristolainen, Yoki Haru. Yeah. You only have three slots on the right side. So one of them's the odd man out. One of them you just traded yeah. um, a first overall, uh, a first round uh, pick. I think it was actually a top ten pick too, and Alex Nylander. You you don't you don't do that just to stash the kid in the minors and let right. him develop. It's probably has NHL value right now, and he's shown that he has NHL value already. And when you consider someone like Tyson Berry, um, a right-handed shot with a lot of value is going to be on the open market and is probably asking for anything above $7 million. You look at Ristolainen, he's got a $5.4 million cap hit for the next three seasons. He's got 20-plus power play points in three seasons he's played in so far, uh, at least 40 points to his name in four straight seasons. At that price... When you consider the amount of money that Tyson Berry could make, um, might be asking for on the open market, Ristolain looks like the cheapest option. So I definitely think Jason Botterill will get a lot of calls uh, in the coming weeks and months um, about Rasmus Ristolainen. I definitely think Ristolainen has value, and there are going to be teams that want this guy. So um, I think this is the best way for 
Jason Botterill to kind of fill out whatever missing pieces he needs is through a Rasmus Ristolainen trade. So it'll be interesting to see um, where, Rasmus, where Rasmus Ristolainen goes, but I definitely think he's getting traded. Yeah, and I uh, I also think or there was like talks also that like Yokiaru and Darlene are going to be like the two defensemen that they're going to use um, in the future. I so. like watch. Um, so that's going to be interesting too, if that that's um, if that's the case. So um, where so it's it's interesting there. So like it's funny because like Chicago had a logjam in defensemen there, um, and then they take it to another team that has even more of a logjam now. So it's it's it is a strange move in that in that regard. But um, yeah, I mean, and also I think like Alex Nylander could be something, but. Uh, just like you know, the like, and maybe they're hoping for Dylan Strom, like a Dylan Strom type resurgence. But at the same time, Dylan Strom was incredible in the AHL. Um, it was just that the Coyotes just refused to give him ice time for some reason. Um, but like, um, but for for Alex Nylander, his his AHL numbers aren't nearly as good as Dylan Strom's AHL numbers are. So it's, it doesn't seem like it's as likely that that's gonna, like he's gonna break through um, in, that, in, that, in that sense. If the Dallas Stars have showed us anything in the past couple of years, you don't need more offense to win games. You need better defense to win hockey games. Yeah. And you look at the Dallas Stars, as a team, defensively, they were better last year and they made the playoffs. True. Even though they didn't have that much offense, they were a better defensive team. Chicago's problem isn't offense, it's defense. Yep. Like, bad penalty kill leads to more goals against. Yep. Ottawa, I think, was the only team that gave up more goals than they did. Like, it's not rocket science. You need right. to stop bucks. Not it's also... more pressure to score. Yeah, it's also like, um, and that, that gives me uh, the other thing is, is when uh, Chicago picked Kirby Dak instead of Bowen Byram in the draft. Yeah, I mean, I know, thing. I know neither two are gonna be um, in the lineup, you know, and on an NHL roster this year. But like, you know, like I, our thinking was, it's like, okay, they have Bogfist, they have Jokiaru, they have Bodine, they have. Um, there's another one, Ian Mitchell, um, in the yeah. system, they like can kind of get away with Byram. I would have chosen Byram, but uh, whatever. Um, and then they pick Dak, and then it's like, so now it's it's just, uh, it's like, why didn't you just pick Bo and Byram then? You know, and now you have to worry about defensemen. Um, you know, <laughs> so it, it was a strange move in that regard. Um, yeah. It's like, why did you do that then? Um, Ron Francis is going to be the Seattle GM now. Um, that's our next item here. Um, yeah, this is an interesting pick. He kind of like built the uh, Carolina Hurricanes uh, to what they are now. But I mean, not to say that Don Waddell didn't do anything this year because he did. But um, Ron Francis uh, was... Uh, was kind of shown the door uh, two years ago, um, and uh, now uh, now he's going to be the Seattle GM. It's it's going to be an interesting case to see how he does. If it's going to be like a George McPhee type situation, or um, 
you know, Ron Francis type thing, but he does have experience in both uh, playing and in general managing. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, so, yeah, this um, this Seattle um, team, I don't know if it's going to be as good as Vegas because probably you think not. NHL GMs are probably going to learn from mistakes in the past. We say that, but then, like, <laughs> you know, you know, then then we see like this year Brandon Tanev and Colton Sissons get <laughs> uh, long term deals, and like uh, uh, after the year before of Beagle and um, what's his face get get long term deals for yeah yeah Anyways. yeah I, I I'm pretty sure Rob Francis is banking. They haven't learned yeah from their prior mistakes. Um, but yeah, taking a look at his resume in the four seasons that he was Hurricanes GM. The best finish Carolina had was six in the Metro Division, never topped 87 points. But if you look at some of his drafting, uh, he, 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 he had some pretty good moments as uh, as GM on draft day. Uh, first off, 2015, 35th overall, um, Sebastian Ajo drafted by Carolina. That's kind of big. Um, for an early second-round pick, got the fifth most points in that draft class. That includes guys like McDavid. Eichel, Marner, Rantanen. Yep. Um, so it's turning no out to be a pretty about, good one. A pretty yeah. good draft class. Yeah. So that that was um, that that was a wise pickup by him. Um, Hannafin was taken fifth overall in that draft. He he didn't really make a name for himself in Carolina, but he was eventually traded, uh, and he turned into Dougie Hamilton. So that yep. wasn't all that bad. Um, you look at some of his other draft picks like Martin Akash, Jake Bean, Hayden Fleury, Allison Delkovich. There's still a work in progress. Uh, Warren Fogel um, drafted in 2014 um, during Carolina's second half surge. He he, he showed um, that he's got some upside to his game as well. He could have a very promising career himself. Um, he, he, he was also pretty decent at making trades. He got Terravanen from Chicago. That was a big one. Uh, he turned veterans like Sakara and Hainsey into draft picks. Um, the Scott Darling trade probably did him in, but uh, I think when you take a look at one, what uh, Ron Francis had to deal with, uh, the cards he was dealt, money wasn't a plenty in Carolina. You, like you look at some of the extensions he handed out, the biggest one was to Scott Darling, and that wasn't even that big. Like that, the AAV on that contract wasn't even five million dollars. Um, in Seattle, you've got a clean slate where money isn't as big of an issue for an expansion franchise. And you look at what the Vegas Golden Knights were able to do; they were making trades for Max Pacioretty and Mark Stone in year two of their existence. And the guy who was making them traded Forsberg to the Nashville Predators once upon a time. So um, I definitely think uh, Ron Francis is very capable of finding success. Um, I think he was wrongly done by the Hurricanes uh, in his final months with them. But I think going into a fresh start, a team that wants to be successful early, that trusts you to build that foundation for future success, I, I think is very refreshing for Ron Francis. And he, he definitely has the hockey mind to do it. Um, one of the most prolific scorers in NHL history. I think he's second all time in assists, fifth in points. So um, there, there's there's no doubt that, um, that, that he's got all the tools 
uh, to be successful. And he's also a consummate professional. Yep. Like, he's just a class act, um, respected by everybody. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think he's going to... I, I don't think he's going to fleece GMs as hard as George McPhee did on the expansion draft and draft guys like Brandstrom and Suzuki in his first draft and, um, you know, snag a William Carlson or, I don't know, a Jonathan March or so. I don't see him having a productive expansion draft to the level of George McPhee, but I, I think he's still going to benefit from this system and Seattle's going to look respectable. I think it would be a stretch to say they make the Stanley Cup in their first year of existence, but stranger things have happened. And now the task becomes hiring a head coach, which will be his first order of business. So we'll see yep. who he decides to go with in that regard. I feel like it's impossible to, com- I mean, I guess the inevitable is going to happen, but it's like almost impossible to compare this Seattle team to Vegas just because Vegas was on such a like they had such a phenomenal first season that it's like it's like any like literally the only thing that Seattle would have to do to uh, beat Vegas their first year is win the Stanley Cup in their first year so that's um, that's going to be tough shoes to follow. So that's like, if you're going to expect that, then um, I don't know what to tell you. So, um, so yeah, I don't think he's going to win the Stanley Cup either, Steve. But, uh, um, but uh, yeah, he, he, he does seem to be a good GM and kind of got the shorthand of the stick in Carolina because I think he was just forced out when um, – uh, Dundon became the owner, so yeah. I, I would, I kind of, I'm rooting for him at least to uh, to get something um, or restore his name in a way, um, if he needed <laughs> his name restored in any way. Um, Colton, we I briefly talked about this before, but Colton Sissons gets seven years, two point eight seven million annual average value for Nashville. This is only kind of a big news because this is one of those things like. Uh, J- Beagle um, or Roussel or like um, Brandon Tanev type situations where he's uh, he's gonna be a bottom six player, uh, but it's gonna be for long term. It's gonna be seven years. So um, it's just it's always strange when uh, just like that bottom six players are getting long term deals now. Um, that never used to be the case. This is one of the, also this is one of those things where it's like he's only going to be making two point eight seven million annual average value, um, but it's um, yeah. But it's funny when I was calculating it up, it's like this is almost twenty million dollars um, if like by the end of this contract. So um, it, like I was thinking like why would someone like Colton Sissons do this? Because you would think that. He would bet on himself and like because he could potentially get more um if if he does do better than what um what this contract says but like at the same time it's like 20 million dollars is not bad i mean it's 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 not great for uh, nhl standards but it's also like 
not bad for real life standards. So he's kind of set for life in that sense. But um, yeah, I don't know. This could be one of those things where um, Sissons will like be make more. This could be a bargain for the Predators if he can uh, be a decent third line center for them. Yeah, the, the, it's it's odd that he would accept this much term because yeah. his arbitration hearing was supposed to be three days after um, the day that he signed this. Like July 26th is when he was supposed to go to arbitration. And three days before that, um, he ends up signing this contract. So, like, again, like you, you mentioned, why, why not bet on yourself instead yeah. of signing a seven-year contract at that price? But... Um, it, it it does it does um, it does pose uh, some interesting scenarios um, when when you consider what he was able to provide to the brothers the past couple of years uh, in 2017-18 he had nine goals and 27 points in 81 games 120 shots on goal um, seven of those points came with the extra man another three shorthanded. Uh, one over 55 percent of his face offs which for a bottom six board wasn't bad they were also banged up a bit down the middle so he he actually was averaging over 16 minutes per game around that time so his presence was definitely needed and that average ice time stayed around the same last year he had 15 goals and 111 shots so his shooting percentage actually went up six percent that year um 30 points to 75 games um face-off win percentage above 53 percent not even at a top six role he was on he was playing with guys like Mikhail Granlund, Kevin Fiala, Kyle Turris, etc. So like he wasn't like even a top six forward at that point. But now that Matt Duchesne enters the picture, the worst he's gonna be is a center on line four. The best he's gonna be is a center on line three. So that kind of makes me wonder if maybe Nick Bonino is the on man out. He's only yeah. got two years left on his deal, making over four million. If, if that's a way where David Poyle saves some money, it's probably trading Benino and then giving Sissons that um, that spot on as a third-line center. Yep. Um, so I, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's Brandon Tanev 2.0 because Jim Rutherford gave Brandon Tanev a no-trade clause. You just pay Colton Sissons, that's it. Yeah. Um, and also, like, Tanev, I think, makes it's like $3.5 million, so it's like, it's a little different than yeah, 2.8. Yeah, it's, yeah, this isn't, this isn't, uh, this is close to $3 million, but it's not. Right. Um, I'm looking, I found this stat on Twitter here. Uh, this is from Adam Vig, Vingan. Um, I think mm -hmm. he's a, he's a, oh, he writes for The Athletic for the Predators. Um, yeah. Via cap friendly, there are only two NHL players whose contracts are at least six years in length with a cap hit of three million or less. Yep. You want to guess? I mean, I guess you would know. Charlie Yankrook is the other yep. one, signed by the Nashville Predators, and David yep. Boyle, Colton Sissons is the other. Yep. Uh, Cal Yankrook has six years and two million. So, um, yeah. so that, that, that's actually the first name I thought of when this deal was made. I'm just like, yeah. wow. So he has Carly Yarncrook and Colton As Sissons. we all. Um, I thought we'd have enough time to talk about the Leafs trade, but I don't think we do. Um, I was also going to mention Donato and Jacob Verana were both re-signed. That could be a pretty good deal for both teams. Um, I feel like Donato um, will be a um, 
a key role for Minnesota if they're going to even be a bubble team. Uh, Donato has to have a good season. Um, and Verona, um, he could be uh, an interesting piece for them, um, considering Backstrom and Holpe are going to be UFAs this year. So uh, he had a good year too, Verona. He had like 21 goals and 24 assists um, this year. So uh, that could be something. But uh, we'll talk about the Leafs trade next week. Uh, to Vegas um, because I expect we both expect that there's going to be more to this than um, than it currently happens but I guess the Leafs have some more cap room um, in a weird way in a twisted kind of convoluted way uh, by adding David Clarkson back um, yeah I feel I fully expect the Leafs will do something before we record yeah. next in the next so, two or three weeks because there's no way they take on two deadweight yeah. contracts on opening night there's no way right I mean we did the same thing for Yoki Yaru for Alex Nylander that trade happened before we recorded last time but uh, we decided to we had a lot to talk about but um, so yeah there's probably going to be more to talk about maybe for the Leafs we'll see but um, I know that they just signed like a bunch of different players now um, <laughs> today, uh, none of which are Mitchell Mitchell Marner. But um, but it is funny that they like sign a lot of like guys to uh, entry level contracts this year uh, this time. Uh, Bruins sends. Uh, we usually don't do Bruins sends um, during the off season, but um, there's really only. I mean, the Bruins don't really have much news on on this front other than they signed Pavel Shen to an entry-level contract. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's, we could see him play maybe, but he'll probably have like a fourth-line or third-line role. I know he uh, he played well in the World Juniors, so um, it'll be interesting to see how he does in Providence. But the bigger news is your Sens, um, they made a trade uh, to get Artem Anisimov for, uh, and they traded Zach Smith. I think it was a one-for-one, one, right? Yeah, straight up one-for-one. One, no draft picks at all. No uh, salary retained. Straight up one-for-one. One. Yeah, that's that was interesting. Um, also, uh, side note to your Bruins, they also uh, welcomed Chris Kelly to their front office a couple weeks ago. He left the yep. sense to focus more on his family, and now he's a player development coordinator with the, the Bruins. So uh, congrats to yeah. Chris Kelly. Wish him all the best. Uh, the Sens, um, before making this trade, they also signed Lassie Thompson to his entry level and um, gave Michael Carson a two-year, two-way deal. He was involved in the Cody CC trade. Right. Anyways, taking a look at the trade you just mentioned, Artem Anisimov for Zach Smith. It's no secret that Chicago's done a lot of tinkering with its roster over the past 12 months. Um, in a lot of ways, this trade makes sense, and it also doesn't. Um, I'll list a few reasons why it does make sense for Chicago. First off, Mark Crawford is now with the Hawks coaching staff. He was an associate coach with the Sens uh, for three years from 2016-17 to the end of last season. If anyone knows what Zach Smith brings to the lineup, it's Mark Crawford. Another potential reason why the Hawks bring in Zach Smith is maybe to help Kirby Doc's development. Um, there's no guarantee that the Hawks' third overall pick in 2019 will be ready to go after his first NHL training camp. Um, I think it would be wise that he doesn't make the team right away for the sake of his development. 
Um, by adding Zach Smith as a veteran option down the middle, it buys Kirby some time to develop his game properly, maybe a year or two in the AHL. Um, or maybe they go, maybe he goes back to junior if they think um, it'd probably be better for his development. But he's had a fairly good junior career. I don't know. Um, I don't know if he's got anything left to prove over there. But yeah, uh, yeah that, that'll be interesting. Um, they also get some bottom six grit in Zach Smith that they didn't have last year. Um, they also don't have to worry about maybe parting ways with Anis Mob in the expansion draft when his contract ends by trading him. You get um, a tangible asset right now. So um, I, I, I thought Anisimov was going to be expendable no matter what, but um, I'm, I'm just concerned why he was traded for Zach Smith in the first place because Zach Smith's contract, like Anisimov's, will expire in two years. Um, I feel that Anisimov has more offensive upside than Zach Smith, even if Anisimov doesn't have a career year in Ottawa. Um, Zach Smith has a 10-team no trade attached to both this year and next year. He's making $3.25 million this year and next. So basically, the Hawks saved $1.3 million in terms of cap it by making this deal. But they're getting a guy with a no trade clause while Anisimov's no trade string has snapped. So Ottawa can basically trade him for future assets anytime they want with yeah. no restrictions. They don't have to ask him or anything. Zach Smith needs to be asked to waive his no trade if it's to a team he doesn't want to be traded to for this year and next year. So in that sense, I don't get why Anisimov for Smith had to happen. Um, the other concern that I have with the Blackhawks is they're on the verge of salary cap hell again. Yep. Uh, I've mentioned... Which is funny, too, because they didn't, they haven't made the playoffs in the last two years. Yeah, on top of not making the playoffs the past two yeah. years. Yeah, whereas, like, before, they, you know, it made sense that they're in cap hell because they won the Stanley Cup three three years in, the, in five. Yeah, three, so. three times in six years or so. Yeah. Three, yeah. Like that, yeah. So, but, yeah, yeah now... <laughs> But yeah, like I, I, I mentioned it before, next offseason is going to be tough because Leonard and Crawford, both UFAs. Yep. Eric Gustafson, 60-point season, doesn't even make $2 million per year. Probably getting a pay raise with C, with Keith and Seabrook on the decline. Arguably your best defenseman at this point. Yep. Uh, Dylan Strom, Alex Dabrinkit, Drake Kajula, all RFAs. Strom probably getting a decent pay raise. Dabrinkit definitely getting his money's worth. Um, even if only one of Leonard and Crawford is brought back. I think the Zach Smith de uh, contract is still going to be dead weight. So it would not surprise me in 12 months time with the cap restraints, it would not surprise me if Stan Bowman buys out Zach Smith's contract and that Zach Smith becomes a free agent before his contract ends. It, 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 what Zach Smith brings just doesn't level up to his contract and the Hawks current cap situation. And they've got so many young prospects uh, down the middle. Um, I can see Zach Smith playing a role for them this year, but after this year is complete, when the when when they're starting to emerge at cap hell, I, I just don't see why Zach Smith on the Hawks would make sense at that point financially. So I that's, mean, that, that's my concern with Zach Smith. I think they sure. do save by making this trade. They do save one point three million 
um, in cap space. That's really why they did it. Um, I feel like if Anisimov was making what Zach Smith is making, uh, they would keep Anisimov. Um, it's purely because of the cap hit. And like, and and now that they have um, Dylan Strom um, as the second line center, Jonathan Taze is your first line center. It's like Anisimov is going to be your third line center, so he could be a second line center on a bad team like the Senators. So I think that's pretty much why they did that. And the Senators need to hit the floor, so that's why the Senators add it because it's. Um, they're going to, you know, they need to hit the floor and they do it just by making this trade. So um, I think that's why uh, both teams did it. It's, I mean, it is a little strange because Anisimov is the better player, um, but I think just in terms of, um, like Anisimov's not going to be the second line center for the Blackhawks because they have Dylan Strom. So um, you're not going to be paying 4.5 for a, 4.5 4.5 million for a third line center um and and that's why they do that yeah i i definitely i definitely think that that makes sense from that standpoint it's it's just beyond next year where oh. um it, it it could harm the blackhawks oh yeah i, I guess that that's that's a fair point i mean i think the 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 funny thing about the blackhawks is and we didn't even mention this on the other trade we were talking about them with like Duncan Keith and Brent Seabrook's contract are absurd at this point because they're yeah. not they're shells of their former self, and um, they're still making a ton of money. They both have uh, no movement clauses, so they're kind of screwed in that sense, and that's pretty much why they're in cap hell to begin with. Um, not to mention Taze and Kane are making ten million, but you can make a case for reasons why they're making ten million. What's also interesting, and we and I don't think we mentioned this in previous episodes, they also got Andrew Shaw from Montreal oh, yeah. and gave up three picks for that. And what's interesting is that, yeah, Andrew Shaw was close to 20 goals and he got 49 points with the Habs, but he was playing yeah. with guys like Domi, Kakaniemi, Druin. If he gets put on, like, the fourth line, don't bank on a 50-point season because right. the Hawks don't have that kind of talent on the fourth line. So Right, right. It, it's just that... I get why. Well, why they would he be like on the fourth of, line? I get why they add a bit of grit in Shaw and Zach Smith, but like you're paying those guys like a combined mm, six, seven million per year for yeah. like bottom six forwards. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Know I don't think. In, in fact, in, in fact, what's interesting is the Sens actually save money in this deal because what's interesting is the day before this trade, the Hawks paid Anisimov. A two million dollar bonus. Right. So even though the Hawks save money cap it wise, overall in the next two years, the Sens actually save five hundred grand. Right, right. I mean, I could. I, Which I, isn't much, but they still save five hundred grand. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I know Daily Faceoff has Andrew Shaw as the fourth line center, uh, right winger, but um, I could see him being in the top six. It's not like you know Dylan Sakura is. Um, he's not like a known commodity at this point. We don't know what he's going to be. So I don't know. Andrew Shaw could like, it could be decent if he's on one of the top two lines. Um, but yeah, I think it's also cause like both to bring cat Patrick Kane, um, and Dylan Strome to some extent are all small players who don't hit a ton. 
So if you do add guys like Zach Smith and Andrew Shaw, there's like less, there's more of an intimidation factor there, and like less yeah. likely that any of those three guys I just mentioned are gonna be injured long term because you know less guys are gonna feel like oh they don't have any tough guys we can take a run at to bring cat um but so now they added some grit there so i think that is value in, in that sense um it should it should also yeah. be noted that uh, shaw has a bit of concussion history so there's True. a bit of a concern there i think zach smith in ottawa his time was up because if you remember at the start of last year right um he was put on waivers yep and no everyone one claimed the team was shocked. Uh, Matt Duchene described it as a kick in the balls for us. Uh, no NHL team ended up claiming Zach Smith. The team didn't even assign him to HL Belleville. They just kept him on the roster. Right. So it's almost as if, even though Dorian described Zach Smith as a leader on this team, it's almost as if they were just putting him on waivers, hoping someone would claim him. Yeah. So I think it was probably best for this deal to happen based on what had transpired about a year ago. Like, how much faith did the Sens really have in this guy and in his capabilities? Um, I And I don't think it was very much. And I think the fact is Anisimov brings more than what Zach Smith does. He's a four-time 20-goal scorer who can help out on the power play and the penalty kill. Uh, just a couple of seasons ago, he had 11 power play goals with Chicago. Um, Zach Smith has six power play goals in his entire NHL career just 14 goals in his last 138 NHL games. Um, I think the Sens have a lot of young talent and a guy like Anisimov can help with that. Um, at the same time, I highly doubt Zach, uh, I, sorry, not, I highly doubt Artem Anisimov re-signs with Ottawa after this contract is up yeah. because if you look at the Seattle expansion draft, Right now, um, Cap Friendly predicts that Brady Kachuk, Colin White, Drake Batherson, Logan Brown, Rudolph Balsers, Vitaly Abramov, and Philip Schlapik are going to be eligible for the expansion draft. So they're not exempt. Right. So I highly doubt the Sens would protect someone like Anisimov if it means losing one of their young talents. So I think both Zach Smith and Artem Anisimov will be signing elsewhere in July 2021, not with the teams they currently represent. But for the time being, and I can't believe I'm saying this because out of everything that's happened in the past couple of years, this was a good hockey decision by Pierre Dorian. I think <laughs> he won this deal, and it's not even close. Yeah. All right, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a good, I agree. I think it's a good deal for the senators. Um, but I, I don't think it's like as bad as you're making it out to be for the Blackhawks. Um, yeah. let's see here. Uh, we're actually almost at two hours now. Um, so, uh, we'll end the show here. Um, I, let's see here. So lace them up. Our pod, our Twitter is lace up podcast our facebook is lace them up our um you can email us at lace up lace up bag at gmail.com i don't think we've ever had any emails there um and our um yeah you can uh listen to us on soundcloud itunes spotify um wherever podcasts are downloaded you can 
there's a pretty good bet that you can uh, find it there. Um, I'm Brett Dubuff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. Uh, it'll be our last podcast for about two to three weeks uh, because at various points, uh, both of us will be going on vacation. Yep. Um, I did record in advance a one-on-one interview with Colin Teske of Sportsnet 5.9, the fan in Toronto. You've heard him on this podcast before. That'll be out in the first uh, couple of days of August. Yep. Um, and we'll talk again in two to three weeks in episode 181 of the Lace Up Podcast. Right. All right, see you guys.